0: Well, let us continue in worship this morning by opening God's word to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. It's here this morning, the word of the Lord. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, man of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know, And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, this, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. As I speak this morning, pastors all across the world are taking a stand against Bill C-4 in Canada, which criminalizes conversion therapy. Why is this troubling? Well, effective last Saturday, calling men and women, boys and girls, to repent of their sexual sin could now be punishable with up to five years in jail. According to this bill, no homosexual, transgender, or anyone else dealing with sexual sin can be called to change. Please listen to the preamble to this bill that is already in effect. Quote, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subject to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over the sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And whereas in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. Now, therefore her majesty, listen to that, her majesty by, and with the advice and consent of the Senate and house of commons in of Canada in acts as follows. Then the bill goes into a description of the criminal code. And here's how they define conversion therapy. And I quote, conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, D repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, E, repress a person's non gender identity, or F, repress or seduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth, end quote. Moreover, quote, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy is, A, guilty, of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years, or be guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction, end quote. Now, please listen to how the bill ends. And I quote, this act comes into fourth force on the 30th day after the day on which it receives royal assent. End quote. Now, I understand that all of this might sound a little big, a little bit discouraging. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you by being very, very clear. Bill C. Four has no true royal assent, and it will continue without royal assent. Moreover, Queen Queen Elizabeth II, the Senate, and the House of Commons in Canada, have no jurisdiction whatsoever to redefine human sexuality. Because there's only one king who has authority over human sexuality. Because this king has all authority In heaven and on earth, King Jesus, King Jesus loves humanity. Bill C4 is a demonstration of hatred for humanity. In light of this, there is one thing these rulers need to do, both in Canada and anywhere else in the world. It is summarized for us in Psalm chapter 2. Verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This morning, as we enter into our text, I want you to know that I stand with pastors in Canada and in other parts of the world to say this, Bill C4 is a direct affront against the risen and exalted Lord Jesus. And to Canadian pastors, I would like to say, don't. Forget whom you serve. You serve the true king to whom all authority has been given in heaven. But let us not forget that the authority of King Jesus is not confined to heaven alone, but it has also been given to him on earth. Therefore, pastors and brothers and sisters, press on. Now, please join me as I pray for our Canadian brothers and sisters and pastors. Father, we bring this nation before you, for you are God over them. And as many pastors right now are preaching the faithful word to be faithful representatives of the Lord Jesus, I pray that you will strengthen them, that you will give them boldness, regardless of the cost. I pray, Father, that you will bring repentance and faith to that nation a true revival and that these leaders who have gone against you will come to their senses and that they will do what Acts chapter, what Psalms chapter two says, that they will kiss the son and they will look to the Lord Jesus and repent. So father, strengthen your church in Canada and bring revival. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Christ Jesus is indeed the exalted king, which is the main point of our text. Last week, we left off with Peter healing a crippled man by the power and in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. As we saw, the healing was instant, perfect, and undeniable. Today, we are in the section of chapter 3, in which Peter begins to explain the miracle. And as you will see, Peter was not at all confused about this. He knew exactly why this crippled man was healed. The heart of his explanation is found in verse 13. The reason this man was healed is that God glorified his servant, Jesus. Therefore, the explanation of the physical healing is rooted in the heavenly realms. Now, I will dissect this section into three smaller parts in order to see it more clearly. Now, keep in mind, please, that the words we are considering this morning are meant to address the crowd's implicit question. Namely, why is this man healed? In other words, what is the reason behind this miraculous recovery? In verses 11 through 18, Peter provides his explanation, which consists of three parts. So first... Why was this man healed in the first part of the explanation? We see number one, Peter's humble attitude, Peter's humble attitude. It is not because of us. That is the first thing he says in verse 11 and 12. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? Two things are happening here. First, this man who has been healed is uh, clinging to the apostles. He's attached to the apostles for obvious reasons. He now can walk. He can follow them. The second thing is that the crowds are astounded, and so they are beginning to surround the apostles. Now, this reaction prompted Peter's first part of his explanation. Once they had all gathered around him, Peter was eager to clarify that it was not because of something in him that the man was healed So Peter says, neither our power nor our piety had anything to do with this miracle you just witnessed. That's the first thing he wants to tell them. In other words, the explanation of this miracle does not reside within us. We are not intrinsically powerful. Neither are we intrinsically better than any of you. The reason behind this wonderful miracle is not us, says Peter I love this because it teaches us a practical lesson regarding the nature of Christian ministry. Even though there are no longer apostles, the essence of Christian ministry remains the same. Christian ministry is by nature deflecting, deflecting Christian ministry is meant to take whatever glory, whatever honor, whatever praise that might come our way and deflected upwards. Those of us who have been called to serve in Christian ministry in whatever capacity, whether through teaching, preaching, serving, counseling, or whatever else should never make much of ourselves. How easy it would have been for Peter and John to make a name for themselves. At this very moment, they just performed the miracle The guy can't believe it, and the crowds are all paying attention to them. The stage is set, but at the end of the day, Peter understood himself to be nothing more than an instrument. The real hands, the real power, and the real kindness behind this miracle were not his. How liberating this is, my brothers and sisters, whatever progress, whatever good, whatever movement forward that happens in Christian ministry is never due to human capacities. Just imagine, here's Peter, the one who denied the Lord, now healing a man. How humbling for Peter. The same one who he denied before the crucifixion is now granting Peter power to confirm his exaltation. Naturally, Peter is eager to deflect the attention where it belongs. This takes us to point number two. Why is this man well and healed in the second part of his explanation? We see number two, Peter's redemptive focus, Peter's redemptive focus. God glorified his servant. The first thing to notice in the following verses and just as a general observation is that Peter does not focus on the miracle itself. Did you catch that? He does not focus on the miracle itself. Rather, he focuses on the history of redemption. His focus was on what God had accomplished in Christ. Once again, I must say that miracles Signs and wonders in this sense were subservient to or servants of the message the apostles preached and never the main attraction. Signs and wonders were never the main attraction. In other words, the people's reaction in amazement and wonder was for Peter an indication that they were not getting it. They were cut up in the miracle itself without understanding that the miracle was meant to point to something greater, namely that the exalted Jesus is bringing something new. Thus, the apostles, listen to this, the apostles never sought to perform miracles for the sake of miracles. Miracles always happened as means to further explain the nature of our redemption in Christ Jesus, just like the crippled man's tendons and muscles were restored. So too, Jesus is making all things new in the universe by the spirit. So beginning in verse 13, Peter takes his audience back to the beginning Back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This means, among other things, that Peter saw a great amount of continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. He constantly refers back to the Old in order to explain the Old in light of the New. Why? Because there is one main theme throughout the Scriptures. What is that main theme? God brings redemption to the world through his servant, the Messiah. In fact, I could could even say it like this. When Peter says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Peter is essentially offering a summary of the entire history of Israel. It is as though Peter throws a rope back into the Old Testament, ties it around the patriarchs. He brings them all the way into the New Testament and says, our entire history, which is summed up in the patriarchs, Is about Jesus. The same God you and I worship, says Peter, the God of our forefathers, the patriarchs, the same God called the patriarchs, set them apart, and established the nation of Israel so that his cosmic redemptive plan in the Messiah would come to fruition. And you know this, men of Israel, says Peter, it was all centered on the servant of Yahweh, the one we read about in the scroll of Isaiah. This is why this man is no longer crippled because the servant of Yahweh has come and he is now exalted. Peter is going to give these men of Israel, his original audience, a series of proofs to establish the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Please keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter three, beginning in verse 13 and following, I will read, and you don't have to go there, I will read several verses from the book of Isaiah so that you and I can see the parallels in the book of Acts. Now, after we go through these evidences presented by Peter, you should have no doubt as to who Jesus truly was and is not only for the Jewish nation, but also for the entire world. So keep in mind that Isaiah prophesied 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. So here's proof number one concerning the identity of Jesus. Before I give you the proof, let me read the verse. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, prophesied, behold, listen to these words, my servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Acts 3, verse 13a, the first half says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his, what? His servant, Jesus. What is proof number one? Jesus is the glorified servant. Jesus is the glorified servant, of whom Isaiah spoke 700 years ago. For them. Proof number two Isaiah 53, verse 3 prophesied He, the servant, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Acts 3, 13 through 14 says, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What is proof number two? Jesus was despised and rejected by you. See how he's taking the Isaiah prophecy and applying it to the Lord? Proof number three. Isaiah 53 verse nine prophesied, He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Acts 3.14 says, but you denied the holy and righteous one. What is proof number three then? Jesus is the holy and righteous one that Isaiah prophesied about. Proof number four. Isaiah 53 verses 8, 9, and 12 prophesied. Listen to this. He the servant was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He poured out his soul to death. Acts 3:15a says, "And you killed the author of life." What is proof number 4? Jesus died and was buried. And then proof number five, Isaiah 53, verse 10, 11, and 12 prophesied when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He, the servant shall see and be satisfied Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong acts three fifteen B says whom God raised from the dead to this, we are witnesses. What is proof? Number five, Jesus was raised from the dead. All of which takes us to the conclusion. What is the conclusion? He, Jesus is the name of, above all names who is restoring all things acts three sixteen, and his name by faith in his name this servant has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all please do you have your bibles with you you can say yes or no those are the two options Yes, please consider with me three verses in conjunction with each other. Here is the point of it all. Isaiah 42 verse 9. Please open your Bibles there. Isaiah 42 verse 9. This is in page 602 in the Pew Bibles in case you're using those. I don't know what number is in your Bible, of course. But in the Pew Bibles, the blue Bibles is page 602. Isaiah 42 verse 9. Listen to this prophecy. This is God speaking. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Did you get that? Now let's go together to Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen, page nine six six in the Blue Bibles. Second Corinthians five, seventeen. Listen to what Paul said. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you see the similarities in language with the prophecy of Isaiah? There is one more verse I want to show you. Revelation 21, verse 5. Last book of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 5. Consider the glory of this verse. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, who is the one seated on the throne? Well, thank you. According to Peter in Acts 2, 34 and 35, it is not David. David. Rather, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat at the right hand of God until all his enemies are made his footstool, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 110. The throne is not currently empty. It's not empty. The throne has been occupied. And the king, meaning Jesus, is currently ruling And he is making all things new. Now, David knew that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. He knew it. According to Peter, David knew it. It was not going to be himself sitting on a throne, but someone else, someone who would not see corruption in his flesh, someone who would live forever. David knew this. David knew these things. But let me say this. What David did not understand. Listen, was the extent of this descendants reign and rule. Not even in his wildest dreams, could David have known exactly how much dominion this descendant would be given. But Peter knows, we're in the New Testament, now we know. This descendant of David, the true and everlasting King, is not only king over a nation, He is king over all things in heaven and on earth. In fact, listen, this king possesses the same power and authority as God himself. Can any other man in the history of the universe say the same thing? The same authority as God himself has been given to this man, the descendant of David, which means he himself is God in the flesh. As such, Jesus has cosmic authority. So this king, whose name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, has made this man well, says Peter. Because this Jesus can now, listen, reverse the effects of sin. You see, Adam, the first Adam, lived and because of disobedience died. The second Adam, meaning Jesus, died and because of obedience now lives forever with indestructible and unbounded authority over all things. And as the exalted God, man, this Jesus of Nazareth has the power to restore tendons and muscles and bones. But not only that, this same King Jesus has the power and he has the authority to restore marriages and relationships and lives. Moreover, he can forgive your sins He can grant you eternal life and he can build his own church. But there's something else that this king can do. But I'll save that for the end. Let's keep going. Point number three. Why is this man well? In the third part of the explanation, we see Peter's unwavering conviction. Peter's unwavering conviction. What was his conviction? God is Faithful. Verse 17 and 18. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What is the ignorance of which Peter speaks here? I believe this refers to the fact that the identity of Christ remained somewhat hidden from their view, even with all the evidence provided through his life and ministry. The apostle Paul will explain this later in more detail when we get to chapter 13, verse 27, where he will say that the people of Jerusalem, along with the rulers, did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. In that sense, they acted in ignorance. They fail to understand prophecy and therefore they also fail to recognize the one of whom the prophecies spoke when he finally showed up. In other words, Peter is not here making excuses for them. He is in fact telling them the awful truth. You guys fail to do the one thing that was expected of you, namely receive the Messiah when he comes. Why? Because you did not understand your own Hebrew scriptures. You acted in ignorance, but. There is good news. God is faithful. The fact that you fail in fulfilling your duty does not mean the plan of God was thwarted or in danger of not being fulfilled. Ultimately, God does not depend on anything outside of himself to accomplish his purposes. This, my friend, is good news. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The sufferings of Jesus during his humil- humiliation were not a defeat They were his victory because it was all according to plan. If his disciples would have known and would have remembered these things, they would not have been so discouraged after seeing Jesus die on a cross. But they did become discouraged because they had forgotten that suffering was a part of the plan for the Messiah, the servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke about. So from a human perspective, Jesus hanging on a cross was defeat. From a divine perspective, however, Jesus hanging on a cross was just the door to glory. So Jesus went through death so that he could be raised and exalted. Now he reigns and rules. The one who died and was buried is the one who healed this crippled man. God is indeed faithful. So now let me bring this word of encouragement to you as we bring this to a close, what is that one word of encouragement that I want to give you? It's actually, let me see, not one word, one, Two, three, four. it's five words, five words of encouragement. Remember who rules the universe. Remember who rules the universe. Thankfully, it's not me. Thankfully, it's not you. A few moments ago, I said I would speak of another aspect of the kingship of Jesus. I have saved this one for last, for it is truly and utterly astonishing. And the point of saying this now is simply because I want you to leave this place with hope. I want you to go home with hope. But listen, not a hope can find to the future only, when all things will be restored. I want us to have a comprehensive hope that is effective and alive even now, even in this broken world. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. This is in page 509 in the Blue Bibles. Psalm 110, we're going to read verses one and two, please follow along as I read these two world shuddering verses, Psalm 110, verse two, verse one and two, I'm sorry. The Lord said to my Lord, what did he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse two, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Have you ever paid attention to that? Now, because of the revelation given to us in the new Testament, we now know that those words were representative of a divine conversation between the father and the incarnate son, Jesus based on Peter's first sermon in acts chapter two. We know that this Psalm has already taken place. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, ascended on high, and now sits at the right hand of the father right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. But there is something quite astonishing. That Psalms 110 verse 2. Reveals and it is this. The authority. The authority. Of the exalted Jesus. Is of such. Universal magnitude and extension. That notice. The context in which he rules. In the midst. Of. Of who? Of his enemies. That's incredible. Note with me that the Psalm doesn't say rule above your enemies, rule outside of your enemies, rule next to your enemies, or below your enemies. It says rule in the midst of your enemies. Clearly, the kingdom of Jesus encompasses heaven and what else earth. If he was only king in the heavenly realm, then how could he rule in the midst of his enemies? As far as I know, Jesus doesn't have any enemies in heaven. Where are these enemies in the midst of which Jesus rules? I believe these are enemies of Jesus on earth. I submit to you that over the last 2,000 years, many enemies of Christ have appeared. But they all, without exception, come and go. They rise and they fall. These enemies can be people, ideologies, rulers, kings, etc. But the point of Psalm 110 verse 2 is to say this. Listen, it does not matter how many enemies King Jesus has. His kingship Is forever established and he never breaks a sweat. Even when surrounded by enemies, he simply rules. He's not concerned, never worried, never nervous. Here's a rather simple illustration just to give you some encouragement. It is really a bad illustration. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. My wife and I, we like to exercise together. And we both wear watches that are supposed to keep up with your heart rate and the approximate number of calories that you're burning. Now, normally, we both do the same amount and type of exercises, with a few exceptions here and there. However, more often than not, at the end of the workout, her watch will almost always say, you burned hundreds of calories. While my watch will say, it's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it. They're not worth mentioning. Now, the calories shown in the watch does not match the work I put in. My wife knows this is an ongoing and difficult struggle for me it's an issue but the point is this she always ends up telling me don't be so concerned about the watch you know you worked hard you know you burned many calories now what we see in the world with our eyes does not always seem to match what we know in truth When you look at the world around you, things don't look very promising. What I'm trying to say is this. What we see in the world doesn't always match what we know about Jesus. If he is king and he rules both in heaven and on earth, why is the world the way it is? Part of the answer is given, at least in part, by Brother Martin Luther, who in his hymn, a mighty fortress said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. I want to say it like this. The world is bad. Not because Jesus is waiting for his enemies to leave so that he can begin to rule. But because Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. According to the biblical view of the kingdom of Jesus, he doesn't wait for his enemies to go away. Rather, his authority is so unbounded and unlimited that he can establish his kingdom in the midst of those who hate him. So I ask you is Jesus king? Over Canada today. Does Canada belong to Christ? Yes, because thank you. Thank you. Yes, because if you read Psalm 2, and we're gonna to get to Psalm 2 at some point, what did the Father promise the Son? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Canada belongs to the exalted Christ. All authority has been given to Christ in heaven, yes, but also on earth. I'm pretty sure that includes Canada. Is he ruling in Canada? Yes, he rules in the midst of his enemies. Jesus is not waiting for the queen, the senate, or the house of commons to stop their wicked ways. He rules right now. In the midst of wicked decisions. Brothers and sisters, let us not forget who rules. Let us not forget, forget who rules over our individual lives, over our family lives, over our finances, our health, our choices, our churches, over this town, over this nation, over all the nations and the tribes of the world. There's only one. It's Christ the King. Likewise, let us not be discouraged by suffering, whether ours or the sufferings and wickedness we see in the world. We are a people of hope. You, I'm going to be blunt. You and I, if we claim to believe Jesus is king, we have no right to be hopeless. None whatsoever. Do you realize that when you say Jesus is Lord, you're making a cosmic claim? We are people of hope. Paul said in Romans eight twenty four and 25. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, We may not see Jesus ruling, but he is. We may not see his kingdom increasing, but it is. So what do we do? We continue to walk by faith. We continue to walk by faith. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Thankfully, my brothers and sisters, our hope is not bound to current events, but to an eternal kingship, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So be encouraged today, because Jesus is Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for once again reminding us that we are a people of hope. For just as that crippled man was healed, Christ Jesus is healing all things. Because to him and to him alone, all authority has been given. So, Father, help us by the power of your spirit to be a people of hope. To know that Christ is king and that he remains unmoved from his throne. And so, Father, we pray for the success of the gospel, both here locally, but also across the world. As the word is being preached right now, we pray that you will give it success, and that many will come to repentance and faith. And once again, Father, we lift up the nation of Canada to you. And we ask that you will bring a true revival, and that through these apparently dark times, the light of the gospel will shine forth with glory and power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.